Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the history and present of the labor movement to demonstrate how times may change, but the fundamental struggle, including many of the exact tactics, remain the same. Plus, get ready to get excited about salts, the secret ingredient in the labor movement. Clips today are from Rattling the Bars from the Real News Network, The Young Turks, The Zero Hour, Bloomberg Originals, and by the way, if you are surprised, there's a clip from Bloomberg in a Best of the Left episode about the labor movement, just know that I am too, but you're not going to want to miss that one. And there's also Counterspin and the Majority Report, with additional members-only clips from Rattling the Bars and Jacobin. And I'm going to just read to y'all a bit of a um, passage from a great article that was written in 2019 uh, by the brilliant author Rachel Angeli for uh, the magazine In These Times. Shout out to our comrades over at In These Times magazine. So this article was called Why May Day Continues to Capture the Hearts and Imaginations of Workers. And Rachel writes in this article, quote, May Day was born in Chicago in 1886. During the late 19th century, workers, tired of 10 to 16-hour days and little pay, began to organize along socialist and anarchist principles. Whether in formal unions, political parties, or cultural groups, working-class people in the United States were motivated by their dismal conditions and the hope they found in anti-capitalist ideas. With discussion about unfair working conditions spreading like a fever, the 1884 Convention of the Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions, or the FOTLU, concluded with a declaration that, quote, eight hours shall constitute a legal day's labor from and after May 1st, 1886, end quote. Both the FOTLU and the Knights of Labor would support strikes and demonstrations to achieve it. When May 1st finally arrived, 40,000 workers went on strike in Chicago, and over 300,000 workers across the United States walked off their jobs. For two days, rallies and demonstrations ensued without violence, but on May 3rd, police attacked and killed picketing workers at the McCormick Reaper Works plant. Labor leaders called for a public meeting to protest the deaths set for the evening of May 4th in Haymarket Square. The events that ensued at Haymarket are fuzzy. A chaotic scene of protesters and police became the site of a bomb explosion whose source has never been proven, followed by gunshots. When things were quiet, the scene left nearly a dozen dead. The exact numbers are disputed, but the Illinois Labor History Society states that seven policemen and four workers were killed. Despite having no hard evidence on their side, the police placed blame on eight people they believed to be anarchists, Albert Parsons, August Spees, Samuel Fielden, Oscar Nieb, Michael Schwab, George Engel, Adolf Fischer, and Louis Ling. These charges were rooted in not only anti-anarchist and anti-communist sentiment of the time, but also deeply entrenched xenophobia. Much of the labor force was made up of immigrants, and so anarchists, communists, immigrants, and workers became easy scapegoats. Six of the eight defendants were immigrants, and seven of the eight men were found guilty and sentenced to death. Two of the men's sentences were changed to life in prison. One was exonerated, and five remained uh, to be hanged. 
Louis Ling was found dead in his jail cell before the execution. And so, on November 11th, 1887, Adolf Fisher, George Engel, Albert Parsons, and August Spees were hanged. May Day celebrations are meant to honor the lives of these people and the movements from which they emerged. Now, I wanted to just sort of like build on that really quick and center us in the words of one of the Haymarket martyrs themselves, Albert Parsons. And then I want to get Mance's thoughts on this. But uh, Albert Parsons um, famously wrote from his cell on death row before he was hanged by the state, quote, and now to all I say, falter not, lay bare the inequities of capitalism, expose the slavery of law. Proclaim the tyranny of government, denounce the greed, cruelty, abominations of the privileged class who riot and revel on the labor of their wage slaves, end quote. So that's really the, the, the fulcrum of this sacred holiday, right? This is, this is the furnace through which the fires of May Day uh, were kindled and they continue to burn today. Seven police die, three workers die. Till this day, historians agree that one of the cops died as a result of the explosive device. We don't know for sure how the other police died. In fact, there are some historians who argue that they could have died from other police officers shooting their weapons. So I guess by friendly fire. Anyway, the crazy thing about this is the business community immediately jumps in. And they say that the real martyrs here were the police. Mm -hmm. And they start erecting monuments to celebrate the police, okay? But wait till you hear what happens to the monument. It's a pretty incredible story. But so far, I'm curious what you guys think. So, John, you've had some reactions already. Oh, you know, uh, it's amazing. I love little details like, you know, curiously, the business community decided to join in. Oh, were they opposed to the workers? Did they use this as an opportunity to point out that they're violent and irrational and you should never associate with them? That is, that is weird. Um, but also, like so much of this is deeply fascinating. And by the <coughs> way, while, you know, we, we've done specials before, we've done shows for May Day before, every year I go back over the history or whatever, I believe that this is actually the year where I, I like went and found the most. Cause I, it really is fascinating. Not only what happened then, but the, the, the ways that people disagree about it. Um, and the cycles that happen over the next few decades about all the different dueling monuments and where they are and when they're destroyed. And it's just fascinating. But all of it is so, it just feels like so many other events too. Like it's easy to hear this happened in 1883 or whatever. And you're it like, it sounds oh, like it could happen today. Well, it sounds, it sounds like Occupy Wall Street. Mm-hmm. It sounds, it sounds like a lot, it sounds like the cops trying to break up social justice or like rallies in 2020. Like it sounds like a lot of cases where people finally come together to draw attention to an issue. And then suddenly it's not about that issue anymore. Everyone, everyone, please focus on the fact that they're rowdy and the cops are trying to stand between you and a gas station being burned down. Like like we're still doing this same exact thing. The media is a little bit more sophisticated and the cops have deadlier weapons, but <laughs> Yeah. Um well in their propaganda, yeah. In their, I think yeah, that in they their are propaganda there, there's no question But it propaganda. reminds me a lot of recent events too. Absolutely. Even though it's 150 years ago. I totally agree with that. I mean, it, 
It's it's incredible how far back into in this country's history you can find examples of police squashing efforts by workers specifically, mm-hmm. calling attention to the injustices of our system. And that's something that you do, Senator Turner, on a regular basis, both on this show and the campaign trail. So I wanted to open up the conversation to you and, and kind of get your thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, it, you could be telling that story in the 21st century. The more things change, the more they stay the same, unfortunately. And even bigger than the police, I mean, at least in this case, as you laid out, the mayor said, hey, things are going peacefully, don't go in. And the rogue officers decided to go in anyway, and they caused this. They were the the, the spark for the murders and people being trampled and that kind of thing. But even if we take the police out of it and just think about what workers are enduring right now, that over 60% of workers <clears throat> You know, can't you know cannot afford to do anything but work. That they're one paycheck away from ruin, one health scare away from ruin, and how workers all over this country, at least over the last five years, have really been standing up for their collective bargaining rights. And we have places like Amazon and Starbucks who are just flat out trying to start labor unions. So that same revolutionary, we're going to fight for our rights. We deserve better than what we're getting. We deserve to be at the collective bargaining table to stand up and fight for better wages, better work conditions, and better Mm -hmm. benefits. It is rippling right now in the 21st century. And if anything gives me hope about what we're seeing right now among solidarity and workers, it is the the new rise, and I call it, of workers in the 21st century. And they definitely are tracing the footsteps of workers from our past. There are 200,000 more people represented by a union in 2022 than there were in 2021. But union density, the share of workers who are in a union covered by a union contract, that dropped from 11.6% to 11.3%. That is the lowest on record. That's about half less than half, well under half of where it was 40 years ago. So this release, unionization numbers rose, but the density continued to decline, continued on that long run trend. And the reason, like that sounds, how are those two things compatible? (laughs) The way they are compatible is pretty straightforward. Unionization rates rose, but non-union jobs were added faster. So this is like, if you look back at 2022, we had one of the most record-breaking jobs. We're still in this very record-breaking jobs recovery. We added, it was a year where we added some of the the largest increases in jobs on record. We added like more than 5 million jobs in 2022. And so unionization rose, but it just couldn't keep up with this real flood in of new jobs. And so the density went down. You know, Heidi Shearholz, I also think it's important when we talk about uh, 11.3% of workers unionized, I'm going to guess that roughly half of those uh, workers have government jobs. Is that about right? Yeah. Yes. So, so uh, I would assume that from a percentage basis, on a percentage basis, 
uh, is it fair to assume that percentage that the decline percentage wise uh, probably happened in private sector jobs? We actually saw a decline in both the 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 rates, the density, both in the public sector and in the private sector in 2022. But you're right. The public sector has unionization rates that are about five times as high as what we see in the private sector. So there's a lot of reasons behind that disparity, but it they they both saw declines um, in as far as union density goes in 2022. Both the private sector and the public sector saw actual increases in the number of people covered by unions. So that same pattern was was. Oh, interesting. Yeah, okay. Yeah, in both public sector and private sector. So the raw numbers go up, but since there are so many more people uh, working, the percentage drops in both cases. In both, yep. So, uh, and then you talk about unionization by race and gender, and this gets to, you know, I wouldn't call it a peeve, but a, a kind of frustration of mine that so often in the national conversation, when we talk about the racial wealth gap, when we talk about the gender pay gap, uh, these are talked about uh, even by people who understand they are they represent injustices. They're talked about uh, in a kind of vacuum when it comes to the engines that might uh, improve those conditions. Mm -hmm. One of them. Uh, one of the biggest ones being unions. You, you and your colleagues have done a lot of work uh, on uh, unions and their impact on things like racial and gender wealth disparities. Have we seen, uh, am I on the right track here? Yes, I, I think unionization is so unbelievably important to this sort of larger national conversation we're having right now around or have had in the last couple of years around racial equity. It is unambiguous that unions reduce like the black white wage gap for example if we just focus on that black workers are the of major racial and ethnic groups black workers are the group that has the highest unionization rate and that's was still true in the 2022 numbers that we got today and then the other thing is black workers get a bigger boost to being in a union than other workers. So for example, right now there's a, we, you can calculate this thing that we call the union wage premium, which is just basically how much more on average does a union worker make than a non-union worker who has the same characteristics, who is, you know, is in the same occupation and industry in the same locality, the same demographic. So like how much more does a union worker make than their sort of identical peer who is not a union, a union member? And that right now, that's about 10%. So it's a, it's a sizable boost to your earnings if like on average, if you're in a union for black workers, it's 13%. It's higher. Black workers get a bigger boost to being in a union. And that's the key. That's why unions reduce the racial wage gap. They reduce, they reduce, they increase wages for everyone, but they increase them more for workers of color. And so they're, that's why unions are so important. Thereby narrowing the, the gap, the income yes. gap between the two groups. Uh, it makes perfect sense. And your report says that of all major racial and ethnic groups, 
black workers continue to have the highest unionization rates at 12.8%. That's not, I suppose, dramatically higher than 11.2% for white workers or 10% for Latinx workers. I'm just reading your data, uh, your uh, data here, but, but it is an increase. And I think that uh, this tracks with the union, uh, the union movement's history of kind of being a little bit ahead of the overall national curve on the issue of racial justice yep. and equality. Is that right? Yes, I, I think that's right. And I'm not at all claiming that that unions have been perfect on race. I'm not like, like sure, of course. the other major American institution almost. They, you know, have segments of the union movement have, you know, acted out racial bias in many ways, right? But if you look on net, the impact of unions on racial economic equity is absolutely crucial and positive. And the one thing that means is the decline of unionization over the last four decades has been a core contributor to the increase in the black-white wage gap over that period. Our ad system respects your privacy, but if you'd like to get rid of them entirely, we would love to have you as a member of the show. Members enjoy an ad-free version of the show, as well as bonus episodes and bonus content in each regular episode, plus extremely handy chapter markers that help identify and navigate the clips. Sign up for membership at bestofleft.com support. Businesses hate salting more than they hate termites or shoplifters. Companies see salts as infiltrators. The share of the private sector U.S. workplace that is organized by labor unions has plummeted. The past year and a half has seen a startling shift. We've seen stunning victories at places like Amazon, Trader Joe's, Apple, Chipotle, REI, and in some ways most strikingly at Starbucks, where we've gone from zero unionized corporate-run U.S. Starbucks to hundreds. Often salting is a key tactic in an organizing campaign. Salting means getting hired undercover at a company in order to organize there. I wanted to salt originally because my mother uh, was in the restaurant industry her whole life. Uh, she worked as a manager, was putting in 72 hour weeks and she was diagnosed with a stage three ovarian cancer. She, like a lot of people in the service industry, didn't have health care. She spent most of her savings trying to fight that battle. And, you know, by the time she died, there was hardly anything left. That's wrong. That, that's not the world that I want to live in. Anything that I could do to improve that was something that I was going to do. Salting has been a tactic used by union organizers for more than a century. The term salting is said to come from the idea of salting the mine when someone would put gold dust into a mine to trick a purchaser. <laughs> I'm Jazz Brissack. My job is to help workers who don't have unions get unions. 
So this was the original job posting to advertise for inside organizers to come to Buffalo. We ended up having a team of about 10 inside organizers. I reached out and said, hey, I was curious if there was something to work on this summer through Workers United. Jess said, would you be willing to go into Starbucks in Buffalo? And I said, I'll apply right now. I got myself hired by playing a role. I was incredibly passionate about Starbucks, and I was incredibly smiley, incredibly gentle in the interviews. I drafted a cover letter talking about how I believed in a future at Starbucks that involved me. Just trying to capture the different check marks that managers are looking for, you know, talking about the business as a family and tried to present the most palatable employee to management that they could have, and it always works. <laughs> Companies, of course, don't like salting. Companies see salts as infiltrators who lied to them and are lying to their coworkers, and in the service of taking away the company's authority over how the business should be run. I defy anyone who says that, you know, a salt is a fake barista. So these are the drink recipe cards from Starbucks. These were the basis for training new inside organizers on, you know, how to make sure that they were up to speed on the recipes and the proportions. The whole point of becoming an inside organizer is that you are actually able to both do the job and build the trust necessary with coworkers to be able to organize and you can't do that by being bad at your job. You have to take some time to get to know people, build relationships, and get to the place where you can start a union safely and you can actually get to a union election. Salting is going through a renaissance now in the United States. Advocates and experts on all sides of this have said it seems to be more people salting right now in the United States than we've seen in the past couple decades. I don't think there's any company that you couldn't salt from, you know, the United Farm Workers to the building trades to the service industry to manufacturing. The goal should be to organize every company. Union organizers, in part through effective use of the salting tactic, have pulled off spectacular victories. But none of them has a collective bargaining agreement. You shouldn't have to have gone through the hell that we did by the company in order to receive our rights as workers and to bargain with them. But the fact that we were able to work together in tandem meant everything. It means that now we can bargain. The big question is, can these workers win union contracts? And what will those contracts be? Salting is one of the hardest ways to organize, but it's also the most effective way because the people who are willing to salt are the ones who are actually willing to learn a job, become one of the people, and then build a union and help organize. I think that's one of the most you know, selfless things that people can do. We need to make sure that the majority of the workforce is better taken care of, and the best way to do that is through unionizing and getting contracts and guarantees to increase wages, increase benefits. It's worth doing and continuing to put pressure on companies everywhere to do better by their workers.
you know, news media seem to virtually always reduce any striking workers' demands to more money, you know. But exactly. you're articulating it in a much more complicated and, and interesting, frankly, context. You know, workers' compensation isn't something that happens in a vacuum. And, and here at Rutgers, you know, never mind wider society, but here at Rutgers, it's priorities in terms of the use of resources that are at issue, right? Absolutely. I think this point about wages is incredibly important because first it, you know, I've been thinking a lot about why this movement is emerging now and what its relationship was even to the world that I grew up in, which was, you know, I was still coming of age under the cold war, you know, in the seventies and eighties. Right. And the attack on the labor movement was so profound and it's, it happens at a time when also the composition of labor unions is changing, of organized labor itself and becoming more female, blacker, and browner. And it's in this period that we actually begin to see the real strikes at the public sector. And those two things are happening simultaneously for multiple reasons. But, you know, I always think of George Meany, you know, the first head of the AFL-CIO who said, uh, the organized fellow is the fellow that counts. Mm. And that was the kind of unionism that, first of all, sacrificed all questions of labor and supported you know, anti-communist Cold War violence all over the country, including Vietnam. But the domestic focus was on a unionism for the most elite workers, white, the male, and craft. So today, it's interesting because the university itself is also trying to push us towards wage demands. The thing that's made the union strong is trying to speak to each job category and to privilege the lowest paid, and that includes the adjunct workers, the graduate faculty, and the EOF counselors. So you have tenure-track faculty using, and we're all doing this using tenure, to fight for the contingent categories of labor. So in that sense, it's a really exciting thing, but it's you know, whenever I talk to reporters, and I've done a lot of media work, I do this work of, you. I, of course, you already knew but trying to explain to them why we need to focus on other demands. That said, industrial campaigns are really hard. This is the first strike. And I think having all these job categories is great for building power. But when you come to the bargaining table, you confront the long history of really anti-labor union practices. And I think I've learned many things. Of course, we're still in the midst of it. You asked where we are now. This is what Thursday. So it is, the fourth day of our suspension, you don't include the weekend. So I think there's going to be a discussion tonight where we get updates from the bargaining table and decide if we're going to resume the strike. There are reasons to resume the strike. You know, there are many demands that we would still like to win, including better language and structures for our non-economic proposals, including five years of graduate funding that's centrally funded and our bargain for the common good demands to serve communities in New Jersey and fight for undergraduate debt relief. So we'll see. You know, it's, it's very important to know that our strike is suspended, not ended, and that we may go back on strike depending on what the union decides. We do not yet have a tentative agreement. But being involved in this process and seeing bargaining, what I always thought was bargaining is that the problem were people that had narrow demands. 
but seeing people that I know very well and respect a great deal go through bargaining, it just shows me that, you know, we're having a, a powerful resurgence of labor organizing, but we're still confronting the narrowness of the possibilities and we're trying to squeeze ourselves through those narrow channels and widen them, hopefully for all workers, just as, you know, the Chicago Teachers Union, the UTLA Teachers Union in Los Angeles, the, you know, Red Tide in Oklahoma and in West Virginia widens the tide for us. One of the reasons that I know that people are seeing what's happening at Rutgers as super hopeful is, first of all, the win, the concrete win of increased wages for some folks and acknowledgement and visibility. But it's also the coalitional nature of the work. Tenured professors standing in solidarity with grad students, with uh, researchers and teachers, and then also students, you know, who are refusing the frame that some politicians and some media are using that suggests that their interests are pitted against those of faculty. The breadth of this effort has been important, hasn't it? It has. I think it's been incredibly important. And this is a way to build power. I also think that one thing I find exciting about Rutgers is that we all know about the incredible social inequality in the U.S. and how it's getting worse day by day. And the only solution I see for this is greater labor organizing, period. Now, I've been involved in many different kinds of activism throughout my life, but I decided to really get involved in the union movement around 2015, 2016, because I saw clearly the rise of racial fascism, you know, the election of Trump. And then later I was in Brazil right after Bolsonaro was elected. And it was one of the most frightening experiences that I've had. And it wasn't because I saw things that were frightening. It had to do with the level of fear of the people that I was visiting, some of whom had had family members killed in the military dictatorship. So I think that the labor unions now, you know, real left labor unions like the kind we had before Taft-Hartley are really important for economic gains and also as political opposition. That's a very good question. I think that it's there's the reason behind the decline in unionization in recent decades. It isn't because workers don't want or need unions, which I think is a big myth out there. It is. I mean, if you look at the survey data, a huge share of non-union workers want to be in a union. Um, the reason is just because of relentless attacks on unionization. And that has you know, it taken the form, many forms, one of which is relentless employer attacks on union organizing. And the law has not kept up to like level the playing field to make it more to, to make it so workers truly have the right to unionize. The law has has not, you know, that our fundamental labor law was passed in 1935 Employers have changed their tactics a lot over that period, and the law just hasn't kept up 
to make it so we workers really do have the true right to organize. So we have just so many workers who want to be in a union who aren't able to because policymakers have not done their job to level the, you know, pass laws that level the playing field. I think um, prior to this administration that that wasn't just, you know, that was happening on both sides of the aisle that you didn't, you saw um, both Democrats and Republicans, um, you know, not doing the things that needed to be done to support unions over that period. We see that changing now. The um, Biden administration has, you know, talked about unions, used the bully pulpit, prioritized unions in a way that I have never seen, you know, in my, you know, awareness of these things. Um, so it does seem like there's a change. There's, there's this sort of broader kind of awakening of the importance to a fair economy of workers being able to, you know, join together with their coworkers to make collective demands. Um, it's a long time coming. Well, I I agree, and people are talking about it more. Of course, I would love to see whether it's a revival of the Employee Free Choice Act or some kind of legislation, or uh, it's going to be tougher now, but uh, something concrete to make it easier for workers to organize. And I think, I mean, obviously, you're an economist uh, and not a political scientist, but I would think that uh, it would also be politically uh, extremely popular to do so be because as, uh, you know, I wish I'd seen your tweets. You, uh, you sent some tweets which answered the questions I had when I began re reading your report. I had to scroll down to figure it out. Uh, and that's at H Shearholes, uh, H S H I E R A H. I'm sorry. H S H I E R H O L Z. Uh, you have a tweet about a series of tweets about this report, and one of the uh, items that struck me, and I had to say, how did they figure that out? But you explain is evidence suggests that in 2022, more than 60 million, that's 60 million workers wanted to join a union, but couldn't. That to me, that's a movement in waiting. Yeah, yeah. So it that's totally right. I could. I can go into the calculations if we want, but I'll talk about the the the, the policy side of this for a second. Um, so there is this really important piece of legislation called the PRO Act, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act. It is really good. It would take a, you know, it would it would do so much to improve, you know, really make it so workers truly have, workers who want to be in a union would be able to be in a union, like really protects the right to unionize. Um, it passed the house in a, this house, you know, the house, the last house, not this one, but right. on a on a bipartisan basis, like it has, it, you know, it had support. Um, of course, it it's not going to make it through the Senate it didn't make it through the Senate filibuster in the last um, Congress, and it's not going to go anywhere in this one. So it really is a matter of um, things are kind of stalled because of Congress, um, because of the makeup of Congress right now at the federal level. There are things that can be done at the state level. There's some restrictions um, for what's possible, like, but the, like, for example, 
There's many states where public sector workers don't have the right to bargain collectively. States can pass laws to make that true, to make that possible. We know that our national labor law, the National Labor Relations Act, doesn't cover some groups of workers like farm workers. States can pass laws that um, cover farm workers, give farm workers collective bargaining rights. So there's things that states can do while the national government is is it's sort of locked on this um but we really do need we really do need that fundamental reform at the federal level let me ask you this Okay, because you're saying you're saying we, and I'm sitting here in my, you know, uh, my 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 studio, and what? So what does? I mean, I assume it looks like in your mind as an organizer, like um, one of those like telephone trees, and the end of that tree, the you know the the I don't know, the, the I guess the leaves or the bottom of the roots um, of the tree is the people who are working on that shift. And then there's one or two people who work on that shift who are the ones who are getting the petition. And then you pull back a little bit and there's a couple of people who are helping those people on that shift. I mean, are these all, are what we talking about, is it directed only at people who are actually in unions? What if I'm outside of a union and I want to help, but I'm just sitting here showing up and, you know, I don't know, I'm running the board at uh, Sam's podcast. I mean, is there, what do we do in that situation? Or do we just, I mean, how, how you know, how, is this just, uh, is this just basically focused on people who are already in an existing union? No, no, no. It's a, it's a terrific question. Um, so two things. One is, you're, you, Sam, are literally doing what you should be doing, I think, by having me and other people, including Gohegan and, and Stanley and others who, who are still talking about the working class, like on your show. So good, good, great, good job. But, um, like discussing the working class in this country is an important topic, which seems to have just, you know, evaporated. So, um, so, you know, I've spent my life helping workers form unions. Um, so it's not just about people who have a union. It's that there's two different things happen. There's several things here. One is that's for people who have a union. For people who have a union already, there's, a, there's several important strategic choices. And that's what, I truly, that's what I'm really trying to outline in No Shortcuts. Though in some ways, for workers who are in unions, I think my first book, Raising Expectations and Raising Hell, is a, it's like a better explanation of how to do the work like in the shop on the ground. The second book is a slightly more theoretical approach to it. But um, So I think... For people who have unions, there has to be, we have to save what's left of what we have. Um, that's one thing. So if you're in a union, um, trying to force a dialogue about how do we shift from business unionism into a more direct action sort of organizer, you know, philosophy, more collective, mass collective action approach to solutions, that's crucial because that's actually what's going to save a trade union that currently exists once the Janus ruling comes down. It's by building, it's by structuring the work in such a way that you just picked it up in this sort of phone tree example, like it's by, it's by structuring um, a way that we actually encourage uh, conversations to happen daily among workers in the workplace. So that's one thing. Now for workers can I just add to, can I just yeah. add one thing? The, the, the analogy that strikes me is that, you know, and, and I've come to learn like in this business, what I'm doing, 
that, you know, we'll put out a YouTube video because it will function both as marketing and it'll, uh, maybe we'll make some money off it. And it, it, that to me seems like the equivalent of like that petition thing. It's like every action you take should both be a, uh, there's value in it yeah. as an, yeah. an expression of power, but there's also value in it and that it's building, you know, I don't want to say marketing, but it, but the equivalent of like, it is, it is deepening the roots that are there for something later. Absolutely. Positively. So part of what I say is that what organizers do, I say this actually somewhere in both of my books. Like when I get up in the morning, here's how, here's what I think about when I'm, when I'm working with workers, um, what I think about every single day is how am I getting people to have meaningful conversations today? That's it. So you just nailed it. It's like, so the petition, let me go back to that petition. That, I mean, I spent half my life writing two-sentence petitions. And people are like, why do you write these little short petitions? I'm like, because the point is not the petition, although the petition does have to have meaning. So, like, people wouldn't just sign a petition for no reason. Um, so that example of, you know, someone, the boss in the third shift is doing something wrong. Um, and instead of just filing a grievance, we're going to say, hey, let's go, you know, get the one or two line petition that says so-and-so is breaking the contract. Um, we want to demand that they actually enforce our agreement. It both has an immediate impact because, in fact, um, we do need to fix that problem. But it's actually having the longer-term impact of building solidarity, right, among those workers in that right. shift. And that's, that's exactly what we have to do. So your analogy, I think, is, is terrific. It's just it's not quite marketing, but it's right. actually it's, it's building solidarity. When I wake up in the morning, what I say to workers when I'm giving speeches is, like, you have to wake up in the morning and think, how is every action I'm taking today building class solidarity? That's literally what I wake up thinking about every day. How is every single action I'm engaged in, whether it's a contract negotiation, whether it's forming a new union, whether it's the political process. I mean, I can go right to the political process in most unions. Let's stick with people who have unions and let's get people who don't, since most don't. Um, continuing the logic of those people who have unions. I'm struck all the time by the fact that most unions don't allow, for example, all workers into negotiations. Um, I was trained to let every worker who wants to come, come. Um, that's one of the reasons that we built a really high participation union in a right-to-work state in Nevada, because we just opened the doors. We just started to break all these you know, weird cultural norms in unions and say, well, if we're going to try and build a high participation union, we can't have a closed-door approach to negotiations. On politics, um, how do political endorsements happen in most unions? In most unions today, some little subcommittee, you know, maybe it's the executive board, maybe it's the political director, some hired, you know, guy, usually, frankly, maybe it's um, some subset of the executive board, uh, just goes off and cuts some deal and makes an endorsement decision. And then people wonder why their members are, quote unquote, apathetic about the political process. Well, in the union that I led in Nevada, the endorsement process was just like collective bargaining, wide open. So we'd say... You know, we put out a giant message, and the way that we put out messages was not not relying on social media, not relying on a flyer. It was like you, you would do that, but you'd rely on those phone tree people to say, hey, the endorsements are coming up for the county commission or the governor's race or whatever it is. Everybody's welcome. And if the candidates don't come and talk to our members, they're not going to get endorsed. And once they do come, it's going to be a vote by the members in the room about who we're going to endorse. So that's that that that's consistent with the idea that if you're – trying to build power, you wake up in the morning and you think, what, how is every action I take in the union building participation and building class solidarity? That's like an approach to the work that organizers have. I guess just sort of building off that and, and we can kind of share our final thoughts on on may day and and why you know folks should continue to fight that 
fight that May Day represents um, and fight it for all poor, working and oppressed people, um, very much including, you know, people who are incarcerated. Right? Because as we've said, um, our struggles are fundamentally intertwined and uh, our enemies are fundamentally mm. one and the same. Uh, or they are working very closely together, right, to exploit and oppress us. And I think you're, you're absolutely right. It's so important to sort of underline for people that – because I, I think like when – Especially people on the left talk about the history of May Day and the Haymarket affair um, and the Haymarket martyrs. Obviously, we focus on the fact that they were, you know, socialist, communist, anarchists. They had like a more left understanding of the system that they were toiling under. Um, but we have to understand, as you said, that like the, the groundswell that brought so many people to Haymarket Square in the first mm -hmm. place, that brought so many people in 1886 to walk off the job, right, was fundamentally the fight for an eight-hour day. It was the fight against, you know, uh, like dying on the job because mm -hmm. you were working with unsafe machinery that would tear your limbs off. It was trying to keep children out of the factories, right? Like so many of these enduring struggles that we are now, as you said, it, either we're fighting again or we never stop fighting. Like as we speak, there are like Republican ghouls in state houses like in Iowa, Arkansas, mm -hmm, and Ohio mm -hmm. who are rolling, literally rolling back child labor laws yeah. because they don't want to pay adult workers uh, what they deserve and, and like – actually you know ensure a comfortable dignified life for their employees rather than do that they're just going to try to expand the labor pool of right, cheap labor right. so children they're going to turn they're trying to raise the retirement age and uh, of course they're going to continue to use prison That's right. labor and so i say all that to say that um the reason that Haymarket became such a flashpoint for so many people is because, uh, you know, the movement grew out of the grassroots of people, working people demanding better. But what the socialists, anarchists and communists sort of politics that were wrapped up in that, I think why they're so important is because they provided people with a vision for understanding the nature of that exploitation and what needed to be done about it. Because if you have that sort of mindset, as you often say, like then you understand that like this kind of exploitation that we're fighting in 1886 and now it's not a bug. Uh, it's a feature of, right. exactly. of capitalism. Exactly. So you gotta, you gotta, you have to like upend this system as, you know, Albert Parsons, like, famously said in that quote that I read at the beginning, like, you have to call this shit out. You have to understand that the system is not going to reform itself, that it is bloodthirsty, that it will drain everything it has, it can out of you and out of our society. And we're now talking about that same system, like, killing the planet that we all depend That's on. That's right. And so, I don't know. I think that um, the urgent, the, the cause is more urgent than ever. But I think the spirit is very much eternal and stretches all the way back to, like Cooper Carraway said, the first time one human had to serve another to survive. As long as that inequality exists, as long as the capacity for exploitation exists and 
um, the ruthless ruthless destruction of lives and bodies and nature, um, we have more to do. We have more to fight for. And so I hope that on this May Day, we continue Mm -hmm. uh, to keep fighting and to remember what it is we're actually fighting for. We've just heard clips today, starting with Rattling the Bars, telling the story of the origin of May Day. The Young Turks compared the violence against the early labor movement with more recent attacks on activists by police. The Zero Hour discussed the current state of the unionization movement. Bloomberg Originals, of all places, explained the labor tactics of SALTs, who go undercover to help unionize workers. Totally badass. Counterspin dove into the story of the labor organizing happening at Rutgers University. The Zero Hour detailed how the law has not kept up with the relentless attacks on labor unions. The Majority Report spoke with Jane McAlevey about the nuts and bolts of labor organizing, and Rattling the Bars brought it all back around with a reminder of what May Day and the labor movement is all about. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Rattling the Bars, diving in a bit on the role of child and prison labor in undercutting labor power. We also live in a society that criminalizes poverty. And like, that's our solution to like, so the people who can't make it under capitalism, the answer is shuttle them into prisons. And so in both cases, the prison industrial complex serves this sort of essential function for the needs of capital. And Jacobin featuring Jane McAlevey telling a very inspiring story about one particular union organizing effort. Marnay had literally led the vote no campaign to the union several months earlier. So most of the nurses were sort of throwing up their hands and thinking, well, Jane, I mean, how are we ever going to move Marnay Payne, right? She actually led the anti-union campaign. We can't move Marnay Payne from a hardcore anti-union position to a super pro-union position. And in fact, they do. So how do they do it? To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now we'll hear from you. And the message I have for you today came in relatively soon after the J.K. Rowling episode published, but I managed to not hear it until today. I I just didn't check my messages for a week and a half, I guess. It's gently critical of the episode, and I wish I had played it earlier because I wouldn't want anyone to think that I held it back intentionally or anything, but better late than never. Hi, Jay. This is Self. I'm calling because I was disappointed in your recent episode on J.K. Rowling. Uh, I appreciate that you took on the important work of drawing out the close relationship between transphobia and fascism, both historically and at present. Unfortunately, while you were pointing in the right direction, I think the episode fell short in a lot of places. For example, you said that J.K. Rowling doesn't distinguish between the authoritarianism of Milo Yiannopoulos and the supposed authoritarianism of left-wing protesters. I disagree. 
She's vocal in support of right-wing extremists like self-identified fascist Matt Walsh, as well as Magdalene Burns, who herself was vocal in support of Milo specifically. Rowling hasn't failed to distinguish. She supports the authoritarians and mischaracterizes their opponents as authoritarian. Overall, I got the impression that you might not be uh, well-attuned to some anti-trans dog whistles. For example, the framing of the debate was pervasive in the episode, which left me a little on edge listening because the trans debate is itself a term used to dehumanize trans people. Uh, it's a framework where we cease to be people and instead become the debate, a debate. <laughs> I also want to add that the day after the episode was published, Natalie Wynn published her most recent YouTube video in which she also discussed Megan Phelps Roper's podcast and her role in it. The video is well worth watching, but important here is that Natalie said she felt used and asked why would anything about this podcast be the way it is if Megan didn't fundamentally believe that J.K. Rowling is in the right. Obviously, you couldn't have included that in your episode. It came out after yours, but felt it was important to get that perspective uh, presented to you and your audience. I would really like to end, though, on something you said that I found incredibly uplifting, one of the most powerful things I've heard in a long time. Uh, you said, it is inescapable that trans and non-binary people have always existed. Our fundamental problem is that we built the structures of society while pretending they didn't. So now we're stuck with a mismatch between the reality of trans people existing and our social and political traditions of pretending they don't. Instead of the current debate over which bathroom trans and non-binary people should use, imagine we got to wipe the slate clean and build our society with the understanding that there are not just two rigidly defined genders, and also that individuals within a given gender have wildly different experiences and socializations. Then how would we design our social fabric, build our physical structures, and design our politics? I don't have the answers to that, but I find it liberating to imagine a world where we get to design for the reality of our needs as a society, rather than the mismatched perceptions we were given. Me too, Jay. Good work. Bye-bye. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record or text us a message at 202-999-3991 or send an email to j at bestofleft.com. Now, thanks to Soph for those thoughts. I think there were two main points there, though it sounded like she may have been holding back a few more criticisms, you know, probably well-founded ones. The first is the one where there's a sliver of daylight between our two perspectives. That's the idea of whether Rowling is actively supporting one form of fascism while thinking that she's calling out another. I certainly take Soph's point that Rowling actively promotes and supports people who are definitely fascists. That's what makes the irony of her comments opposing what she sees as authoritarianism on the left so juicy. However, the sliver of daylight of difference in how I would describe that is that I'm trying to start my argument by taking Rowling at her own word and breaking it down from there, whereas Soph is jumping to the implications of Rowling's words and actions. So to take an extreme example, though not that extreme given the number of fascists involved in this conversation— I've always heard stories that I've never bothered to fact check about Hitler being vegetarian and loving animals. I don't know if that's true, but let's pretend it is for a minute. 
If Hitler was tweeting about his love of animals and condemnations of eating meat, then someone from PETA could theoretically retweet that while believing that they're not supporting fascism, right? You could imagine a person separating those two ideas. That's where I enter the conversation and take Rowling at her word that she is universally against authoritarianism and that her ideological alignment with a bunch of fascists is simply incidental. So I take her at her word and then try to prove her wrong from there. Now, if you're thinking that this level of hair splitting belongs squarely in the who gives a shit category, I hear you and you're basically right, but I'm trying to build an argument that I hope stands up to scrutiny, and it's a slightly more solid foundation to begin with a person's own words rather than the implications of those words. Sof took the other route of looking at the implications of what it means to support the ideas that fascists espouse. Sof may say about that PETA member retweeting Hitler's dog videos or whatever that they're effectively supporting fascism by lending credence to Hitler. And that's true. It's just that there's a difference between the result of a person's actions and how that person sees themselves and their intentions. If that PETA member believes in their own head that they can retweet Hitler and oppose fascism, then they'll see Sof's framing as an unfair misrepresentation. If you accuse someone of supporting fascism by retweeting Hitler's dog videos, they could say, hey, that's unfair. I don't support extermination camps and all that. I just think he has a great perspective on animal welfare. But in Rowling's case, she says, hey, 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 I may be retweeting a bunch of Nazis who want to exterminate trans people, but I don't support that. I just think they have some really solid thoughts on the sanctity of women's sports or, you know, whatever it is she's actually promoting. So that doesn't mean that Sophie doesn't have a solid point. She does, but it's just my strategy of how to construct an argument that explains why I don't use that line of argument. In the Natalie Wynn video on the ContraPoints YouTube channel about the witch trials of J.K. Rowling that Soph referenced, it's pointed out that a publication reported that Rowling had equated trans people with Death Eaters, and they were quickly met with a takedown order from a lawyer because Rowling didn't equate trans people with Death Eaters, but rather the trans rights movement. Not that that helps her argument all that much. That's basically a distinction without much of a difference, but it's an example of how very slightly misrepresenting an opponent's argument opens the door to a mudslinging war over who's misrepresenting who while obscuring the important matters underneath that you're actually trying to address. So the second point was about the framing of a trans debate in general, which is a point that is very well taken. It's similar to the dog whistle argument over education indoctrination, which is rampant in the U.S. right now, which, uh, and we talked about it on a bonus show for members a few months back. Indoctrination is the buzzword for saying, basically, you don't want us to be able to debate whether it's okay to be gay or trans anymore. And they're right. That is exactly it. I want to put the existence and full humanity of all people in the LGBTQ community outside the realm of debate. 
in just the same way that we refuse to debate whether women should be the property of their fathers or husbands, or whether white people are a genetically superior race of people. We don't entertain those debates anymore, and one day, hopefully soon, we won't entertain the debate of the full humanity of trans people. But by even referring to the debate, this is sort of Soph's point as I understand it, by even referring to the debate as though there is a debate, it sort of normalizes and helps perpetuate it, whereas refusing to dignify that framing at all helps to bring it to an end. As I said, point very well taken, the tricky part as a communicator is that you often get stuck using whatever terms and language already exist, and anything that is due for an update or a critique that you're not personally aware of, you just end up using it and perpetuating without realizing that you've done anything unhelpful. This is an interesting example of that because, on one hand, I was very aware that ending the debate was a major part of the goal, and yet I probably continued to use that term, not thinking too much about it, since I was spending a lot of time describing a real phenomenon of opposing sides giving their opinions. So, you know, in a neutral sense, that's technically a debate, but is it necessarily a debate with two valid perspectives that deserve to be framed as a debate? Maybe not so much, at least not at the core where it's people's humanity that's in contention. Soph said she was on edge listening to the episode because of my use of the debate framing, and I completely get that. That's exactly the kind of skepticism that I expect for people to have when listening to a topic like that, because I know that I don't know everything, and I am likely to screw something up. So as I published that episode, I had a sort of reverse of that kind of on-edge feeling, thinking about people like Soph who would be listening and saying to myself, oh boy, I hope I didn't fuck this up too much. So it's only reasonable that Soph and many like them would then listen to that episode, nervously thinking to themselves, oh no, I hope Jay didn't fuck this up too much. So, you and me both. But to end on a high note, just as Soph did, actually, this has been an unexpectedly emotional production day for me. Longtime listeners may have heard me say before that uh, I only tend to get teary about happy things. I don't tend to cry about sad things uh, too often. And uh, today, it happened twice. The first was the second bonus clip that members heard, which was a story about converting an anti-union activist into a pro-union activist and the building of solidarity it took to get them there. I just found that very touching. <laughs> and then the second was hearing Soph describe something I'd said as uplifting and powerful, and hearing that was very much uplifting and powerful for me. So, I really appreciated that. As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave a voicemail, as always, or you can now send us a text message through SMS. Find us on WhatsApp or the Signal Messaging app, all at the same number, 202-999-3991, or keep it old school by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and LaWindy, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus 
show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. Memberships now you get instant access to our incredibly good and usually funny bonus episodes. In addition to there being extra content, no ads, and chapter markers in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And you can join the discussion on our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.